Hey, Rockheads. The Norwegian Developers Conference is once more coming to London, December 1st through the 5th. Come hang out with Richard and me in the fishbowl, while hobnobbing with such celebrities as John Skeet, Don Syme, Scott Allen, Denise Jacobs, Damian Edwards, and many more. That's NDC London, December 1st through 5th. Check it out online at ndc-london.com. We'll see you in London. .NET Rocks, Episode 1051, with guest Troy Hunt. Recorded Monday, October 13th, 2014. And there you have it. We're here again. Where are we? We're we're back home. Yeah, we're doing our thing with a thing. For a while, anyway. It's fun to do the road shows, but, you know, it is really fun to be at home and record with the studio and stuff. I know there's stuff coming up, because this we're living in a very exciting time, developer-wise, and there's just going to be nothing but awesomeness ahead of us. So, <laughs> Large piles of awesome. Large piles of awesomeness. I think uh, I'm, I'm just very excited to be a developer today. Yeah, yeah, it is fun, isn't it? Yep. Better than a real job. Sure is. Speaking of real jobs, roll that funky music. Awesome. All right, buddy, what do you got? Well, in honor of our topic today, mm-hmm. I found a news story that just came out uh, the 1st of October that Factory IoT saves Intel Corporation $9 million. Wow. Nine million dollars. It's at tinyurl.com slash IOT at Intel, and that's A T spelled out. I O T A T Intel. Uh you know what's interesting to me is that factory IOT. Is that IOT or is that just automation? I mean, I, I think of IOT as sort of like uh broadly scoped in terms of geography, but I guess it doesn't have to be. No, I mean, I appreciate the idea because I've worked on factory automation systems for years, but they're not IP. You know, they don't use HTTP. They don't have standard protocols. They're all their own secure stuff, right? We used to hook all this controller gear up for factory valve controls and things like this using RS-422, you know, and it was much more isolated. What's cool about what they're talking about here is this idea that you know, standard protocols over standard communication so that all that usual infrastructure just works. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah, I remember using the Rockwell controls. Remember those? Yeah. All that sort of uh, machine control stuff. And yeah, it was fun. But uh, yeah, it, I got to imagine that um, just uh, HTTP being so easy, even yeah. in the factory, that... Uh, that it's got to be being used. I'm I'm looking forward to digging into this story, though I haven't really read it. But uh, you know, in, in in Troy, I'm sure we'll chime in. But it reminds me of you know what happened at Target. Yeah, the HVAC system was the vulnerability. Yeah, the security issues, especially when you you know start punching holes through the firewall and stuff. So well, that's the other side of common protocols, right? It means common exploits. Yeah, if you think about what a firewall was created for. It was created so that you couldn't get in. And then all of a sudden, oh, but browsers are okay. <laughs> really? HTTP is okay. Yeah. And then we have all these problems with HTTP. All right. Well, anyway, I don't want to, I don't want to start a discussion without Troy here Great. to talk about it, but that's it. Uh, it's an interesting story. Um, Intel in Malaysia, in their Malaysian factory, they uh, saved about $9 million just by automating stuff with IoT. Cool. Very cool. 
It's a real thing. Yeah. Yep. Who's talking to us, Richard? Grabbed a comment off show 1005. They when they did this strange Australian fellow named Troy Hunt, where we talked about web security breaches. And this comment comes from Arum Kumar, who says, uh, hey, thanks for discussing the N Twitter handle incident. That was the guy who had the letter N as a Twitter handle and yeah. basically had it stolen from him. If I remember, Scott Hansman also had a similar issue. Yeah, he's had a few different attacks of, of kinds that he's publicized. Uh, where one attacker tried to redirect his shipment to a different shipping address by talking to customer care. Mm. He blogged about it, and in addition to the fact that both these attackers use social engineering tactics, which seems to be the thing now, there is another common factor. Both these attacks happen through call centers. Mm. And who do you think will be answering the calls? What accountability do you have with the company they are working for? Nothing. Mm. Because most likely these call center jobs are outsourced and they help you based on the script given to them. Right. I'm sure the call center person who helped the attacker trying to steal the N account may not have realized the impact of their actions until now. And they might have finished that job in Bangalore, most likely, and then just gone home. Turns out the most insecure computers of all are our brains. <laughs> Certainly exploitable. Yeah. Uh, and Arun goes on to say, I am from India and I know the skill level of the people who get hired into these outsourced call centers and the accountability these outsourced call centers has. Sadly, nobody's talking about these unless there is some more obvious issues happening like stealing or selling customer data, credit card information, and so on. In my opinion, problems associated with outsourcing are deep-rooted and serious, and I'm almost sure that the development of the infamous healthcare.gov website might have been outsourced to some company in some third-world country who used hundreds of fresh graduates to complete the project and ship it. That is not true. I happen to know some of the folks that worked on it, and the story is way more complicated than that. When Uncle Bob discussed the healthcare website debacle on the show, I was thinking about this. And yeah, Uncle Bob had a great conversation because he actually hit on the big issue, which is the problems with the site were known, and they chose to, because of politics, not deal with them, but rather let the site fail publicly. And that was really a failure of professionalism more than it was a failure of technology. Mm. Uh, I mean, I'm not going to have a hard time arguing with Arun. He lives there. He knows folks that work in these outsourced call centers. I mean, in the end, it is a you could argue it's a weakness in the script that we are using. The, the process that we put in place, even when followed perfectly, can be exploited. But I also think it's a, a an issue of human nature as well. Generally speaking, if you're a call center worker, you actually want to help people. Mm -hmm. You know, they're not robots; they're people, and they've got people on the other end. And there's going to be some empathy there. And there are con artists that are going to exploit that empathy, trying to do the right thing to do the wrong thing. We just have to be cognizant of it. Mm -hmm. But whether I agree with you or not, Arun, thank you so much for your comment. Uh, .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or in any of our mobile apps. We've got them for Windows 8, Windows Phone 7 and 8, Android and iOS. Hey, uh, before we start, I just saw one of these little memes on Facebook, and it's just so funny, I got to tell you. And uh, I don't usually do this, but it, it, it's sort of just a bunch of quotes, starting with uh, somebody a long, long time ago and ending with a more contemporary quote. And the, it just shows how our language is getting more and more terse. And in fact, our questions are getting more and more terse. So Aristotle asked the question, what does it mean to be a good person? And Descartes asked the question, what does it mean to be? And then Nietzsche asked the question, what does it mean? Right. And Bertrand Russell asked the question, what does it mean? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and C.S. Lewis 
ask the question, what does it? What does it? <laughs> and then finally, Lil John asked the question, what? <laughs> <laughs> what? What? Hey! <laughs> All right. Anyway, uh, let's get back to the show. Troy Hunt is a software architect and Microsoft MVP for developer security. He spent the last 16 years or more building web applications and currently oversees software architecture for Pfizer Pharmaceuticals engineering markets. He blogs regularly about security principles and software development at TroyHunt.com and is the author of the OWASP Top 10 for .NET Developers series and recently the free ebook of the same name. Troy is also the creator of AsafaWeb. A-S-A-F-A-W-E-B, the automated security analyzer for ASP.NET websites at asafaweb.com. Welcome back, Troy. G'day, guys. Thanks for having me. Well, it's good to have you back. Uh, last time we talked, I think we were in Norway, weren't we? Yeah, we, we were actually face-to-face. That was fun. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's kind of luxurious, isn't it? Yeah. I know. I know. It might be a while, too, before we do that one again. But Probably. yeah, oh, we'll see. But I'm looking forward to being uh, sufficiently scared today. <laughs> That's the goal. That's yeah. the goal. <laughs> well, I mean, we have done a bunch of shows around IoT lately because it does seem to be the new hotness at the moment. And I think one of the first ones we did was back a while with Clemens Vasters. And he talked about the security concerns, about everything being encrypted and basically about making uh, a certain amount of communication one way just so that there was only so much you can manipulate. But... You know, I, I appreciate your thinking on security, Troy, so uh, scare me some more. And I actually <laughs> think that the, one of the first things we did on IoT was actually Gus Issa way back in the day, talking oh, yeah. about the, yeah, the Gadgeteer framework. And uh, he had actually written, uh, I think it was him, that had written a paper at GHI Electronics called The Internet of Things. And I, and I thought that was an odd title for a paper, but uh, that was my first foray into it. So, yeah, man, what's... What's the latest? What do you say? Well, it's, it, it's interesting, uh, you know, this IoT thing. So on, on the one hand, it, it's such a new thing. Or, wow, how exciting is it? Let's connect all our things. And on the other hand, we, we've kind of been doing it for, for a while as well and, and kind of been dealing with some of the, the issues that come up security-wise uh, relating to that as well. And, you know, one of the things that, that just came to mind as well, remember a few years ago, it was all TrendNet cameras that were getting exposed. Oh, right. So I don't know if you guys saw this, but these little consumer cameras that you can sit in your lounge room, uh, they're IP connected, and for convenience, they're accessible from the external world, except that there was a vulnerability which effectively exposed the admin interface to anyone who could uh, use a Google search. Oh. <laughs> so, so it, it, and, and this is the thing, right? So this was before we were seriously talking about IoT and all our other things, um, because we're going back, I think this was probably around 2010 or even earlier, though, um, you know, having really, really serious issues about this. So the, I guess that's a good place to start, this awesome convenience of being able to talk HTTP to devices is awesomely convenient, but it's also opening up some very, very new risks when we put everything out there over port 80. Yeah, you know, my experience dealing with firewalls basically is port 80 is everything now. You know, the fact that you can't close that port means, and, and because the fact that it's any kind of traffic just means it's a, a huge exploit. Like, the, anything could happen there. Well, is there any kind of traffic? I mean, there are firewalls and the analyzers that will look at the protocols and not allow, 
you know, uh, higher protocols than HTTP, right? Yeah, and of course, you could always filter within that that particular uh, protocol and port. I mean, you you could block off certain services and so on. And obviously, that that's a that's a very common pattern. Mm-hmm. But it, it's it's kind of counterintuitive to the point, right? Which is to make the devices easily accessible, to to make them uh, so that you can pull out your smartphone while you're down at the beach and unlock your front door or whatever it may be <laughs> with yeah. your IoT thing. Yeah, exactly. And it, it, and these uh, security issues over port eighty are are not. Uh, anything new either but i guess what is new is that companies are are jumping into the idea of putting lots of little devices all over the place one of the things that clemens told us right off the bat is that the best pattern for this security wise is to only make these devices clients they should not be servers and uh, that that sort of even goes against the stuff that we've been dealing with uh, up to this point, you know, like those trend cameras, those are servers. Yeah, that that's a very good point, and it's it it's interesting because I guess it look it, it sort of depends on what component of the security you're you're looking at. And I, and I listened to that show, and I thought that made a whole heap of sense, mm. <laughs> particularly when you think about the uh, things like the cameras. But w- what's interesting is when we start to look at attacks that that may begin with the device, but then move on to other places. So a really good example here is, uh, have you guys seen those LifeX light bulbs, the ones you control with your smartphone? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. All right. So first of all, how awesome are they? <laughs> because I want to be able to actually, you know, change the color and the brightness and everything uh, of my room. And I want to be able to orchestrate it across all my light bulbs, which uh, I think is pretty awesome. Yeah. Uh, however, <laughs> a few months ago, it turned out that the light bulbs were leaking the Wi-Fi credentials of the network because you've got to be able to talk to the light bulbs or, or at least talk to the unit which orchestrates the light bulbs over HTTP. I mean, that's the design, right? You whip out your smartphone and, and you control it. But the way they'd configured them when they were joined to the Wi-Fi network is that Wi-Fi creds would be leaked. Mm-hmm. And and now I find that really interesting because people go, well, do I really have to worry about my light bulbs? Because it's, you know, like if an attacker gets control of my light bulbs, what are they going to do? They're going to change my red lights to blue <laughs> or something. And you don't care about that, but I care dearly about them possibly leaking my Wi-Fi credentials and now they're on my network. Right. And that's the real issue now is is not what leaked, but what it leaked and what you can do with it from there. Nobody cares to get control of Target's HVAC. But getting through the HVAC allowed them to get to the credit card information. Exactly. It's a gateway, isn't it? You get mm-hmm. in there and, and then you pivot somewhere. So that's, you know, that's a good example of, of where I think we've got to shift our mind just a little bit where it's not just about the device itself, but what's the broader ramification. But the other interesting thing with LIFX is after this vulnerability was disclosed and LIFX came out and said, yeah, okay, you know, we, we screwed up in that area. However, we have had no reports of malicious activity against this system. Yeah. Now, what strikes me as really interesting there is if you're at home and you discover that your neighbor has been torrenting off your Wi-Fi, are you going to go, oh, man, I better say those light bulbs. <laughs> the light yeah. bulbs have given me up. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you know, so, so what's happening here is we've got this class of device that we never thought to, uh, you know, apply the same due diligence to. We never really thought about patching. I mean, you, you don't sort of sit around and go, well, I, I wonder if Windows Update has run on my light bulbs or I wonder if yeah. I need to go and patch the firmware on it. It, it. it is a brave new era in terms of the way we've got to support these things as well. Right. Indeed. You know, um, I don't know how you feel about this, but I remember back in the day when I had 
uh, a local ISP who was actually a friend of mine. And I had an email account on that ISP. And the email client was using encryption, right? Encrypted SMTP and POP3. And I remember sending a password to him, to, to my admin, in an email. And he kind of freaked out. And then I said, well, you know, the we're on the same network. Like, it, it just went encrypted mm-hmm. to your computer, and that's it. Like, it's not out there. And it is encrypted. But, um, and then he says, oh, yeah, I guess you're right. But I don't know if that was really a a wise choice looking back on it now with everything that I know about security. Do you think that people are just because, you know, their Gmail client or their Gmail website uses HTTPS that they think that that's okay to send, you know, passwords and things in email to other Gmail users and, you know, and it's safe. Well, this is sort of part of the problem in, in, because the question is really, well, what does the consumer think of the security profile? Right. But there's not a lot the consumer can use to make an educated decision about security profile. Exactly. Uh, and in fact, really, the, the only thing that we can ingrain in people when they're using web applications is to look for the padlock and look for HTTPS. And that works pretty well to a degree in the web world. But of course, all that's doing is giving you assurance that you are talking to who the website says they are and that right. your, your things are not manipulated or, or seen over the network. And that doesn't mean anything about other gateways into those same servers where they're, you know, where your data is, where you, where you, where you sent it. Yeah, well, I think there's two sort of interesting observations of that. So, you know, to your point, once it goes to that server, terrible things can happen. Sure. <laughs> you know, I mean, if, if I go to Gmail and I send an email to an external address, it's probably going to go out over SMTP in the clear yeah. somewhere or other along, along the way. And, and consumers don't know that. But the, the other one that I find really interesting in the theme of, of, um, of IoT and APIs, and I've just pushed a Pluralsight course that goes in a lot of detail on this, is that when we start standing up services behind devices, whether they be things or whether they be things like uh, mobile apps, we have no visibility to even the security of the transport layer. So there are so many apps that mm. you open up on your device, and there are so many uh, IoT items these days that just simply go out over HTTP. So there's not even yeah. a transport layer, and we have no sort of... Uh, explicit assurance like we have in the browser when we see an HTTPS address. Mm-hmm. Even when we see that padlock, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's a good idea to send to send passwords. I've, I've seen, uh, I have friends who do this kind of thing. You know, if they're, they're sending credentials to somebody, they will text a user, the username and then they will send, you know, the password in another text from another phone or something like that, like break it up, send the username and the email, send the password and a text, you know, but yeah. with no context and no, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, that, look, that's the thing. And I'm, I'm actually okay with that uh, insofar as we, we speculate a lot about risk, right? We Where sure we do. say, look, this, this could happen, that could happen. We're notoriously bad at actually accurately assessing risk. And it's a hard yeah. thing, right, to assess. But if at the end of the day, someone sends someone an email via one channel, 
And then via a totally autonomous channel like SMS sends a, a great big crazy whack of random characters, which is your password, uh, via SMS without any context, you got to join a lot of dots for those things to be used together. I mean, it, right. this is NSA-style dots yeah. <laughs> you're going to be joining by the time someone owns both those channels, right? Yeah. Yeah, you've got bigger problems. Yeah. <laughs> you've got something else to think about. I've, I've sort of thought of this as it's the security of opportunity, right? Like putting a club on your steering wheel of your car does make your car impossible to steal, makes it harder to steal than the next car. Yeah, it's a deterrent. That's right. I thought where you might go with that, actually, Carl, was, was the one where someone sends you an email and says, here's the, here's the username, but I'm going to put the password in a separate email. Ten seconds later, here comes the email yeah, with the password. Yeah, I know. That's really You're dumb. worried about the email. <laughs> Why are you sending the password? <laughs> you just the linked email? them together. Yeah. Uh, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so we have perception problems with IoT as well. And um, and this is this is where it becomes worrisome because people construct these mental models of how you know, the internet works and how IOT is going to work, you know, and they draw it all out on the whiteboard, you know, and then after it looks good to solve the business problem and it's all great, then somebody says, all right, now how do we secure this? You know what I mean? Whereas uh, the simple idea of making the, uh, you know, architectural idea of making the device a client only, you know, is something that probably should have been put on that whiteboard first thing in the morning, right? Yeah, um, Sometimes they ask, how do we secure it? <laughs> there are probably cases where, uh, where that question is not asked, which is sort of the problem. <laughs> I, I think one of the things with IoT, like many rapidly emerging technologies that has everybody very excited, is that organizations want to move fast and they want to be first to market. And one of the things that tends to happen when you're constrained, uh, particularly by time as well as money, is that you make compromises in, in certain areas and inevitably one of those areas that compromises are made on uh, is security. You know, let's get the thing to market. That is our priority. That's the commitment we've made and and quite reasonably, that's what we need to do in order to be successful in this segment and mm -hmm. I get that. Uh, the, the question is what's the right amount of security to apply to this process mm -hmm. and if it goes wrong, how might that actually derail that objective of being the first out there because you also don't want to be the first one who's just had all your Wi-Fi enabled door locks unlocked around the world in one go. That's, sure. that's not a good look, <laughs> look for your organization either. And that's the thing too, um, the, the, the connected door lock. Uh, in fact, there's a few companies doing this now, but one of the guys that did that early, and I've, I've not seen anything to suggest a vulnerability with these ones, uh, is a crew called Lockytron. And Lockytron makes this device that fits over your existing deadlock. Right, And it's in my mind, this is enormously cool because I love the idea of walking up to your door and you just wave your phone near it and it goes, yeah, I'm going to unlock it. But what they want to do as well is say, well, look, uh, if you're away from home and a guest comes to visit, you can remotely unlock. If you lose the device which you use to unlock it, you can call up Lockytron and inevitably authenticate yourself, uh, possibly to a weak um, link, which might be <laughs> right. might be the operator again, as we just discussed earlier, yeah. uh, and they will unlock it for you. Now, all of that is very, very cool, but of course, it, it, it begs the question, once you have the ability to remote unlock, what ways might there be of an attacker uh, leveraging that, whether that be via social engineering or a technical risk? Yeah, we uh, Phil Hack told us about the Lockatron. And uh, that, uh, yeah, I guess you can open it with a code on your phone too if you don't want to use your near field. Uh, yeah, yeah. 
it's a, it's a Wi-Fi enabled door lock. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, it's like, again, it's, it's cool. And this is what tears me up where I love these things that are getting so connected that the geek component of me goes, I just want <laughs> all yeah. of these things. Right. And there's this other, it's like the, the little sane voice in your yeah, head going, okay. Oh, be careful. <laughs> it's over IP. Yeah. And again, it gets back to this idea, you know, it's not as if key locks are immune. True. The average door lock is, you can use a bump lock. You know, there's so many ways to exploit it. If somebody actually wants to try your door, uh, you know, we, we have a front door camera now, uh, which we had actually for a few years because you can't hear the front door from the office. And every night, my wife locks that door. And I ran her back video of, I don't know, three or four years. says, nobody has ever tried to open that door. Mm. Yet we lock it every time. Yep. Like the, yeah. the reality is my lock's never been challenged. I have no idea if anybody actually wanted to pick that lock or break through that lock or anything. Nobody's ever tried ever. And I, I think that comes back to the, the, the whole thing of, you know, there, there's a little bit of insanity in terms of, of some of our concerns about security risks. And I, and I know it's sort of the, the flavor of the month at the moment mm. uh, to criticize the weaknesses in IoT as well. But the reality of it is it's, it's an alternative to something else normally, which, which may have a physical weakness, you know, to, to your point, Richard, about, you know, bump locks or, Lockpicking kits or all these sort of things. Um, of course, the difference is, is that you've got to have physical presence for one of them and the other one you right. can sit there from your, from your dungeon in Kazakhstan and <laughs> unlock anything anywhere in theory if there's a risk. So that's, it, it differs a little bit in that way as well. But certainly there's, there's a lot to be said for, for an objective risk analysis in terms of how likely is this thing to actually happen as well. Right. You know what? The other side of this is that IoT can be used for security. I mean, Richard just talked about the camera that's on his uh, on his door. Uh, you know, um, we we have cameras, we have sensors, we have a lot of data that we could be collecting about the potential threats to the systems that are really important. Mm, mm. You know, and and I I get that. You know, a real criminal because you know I've seen TV shows. A real criminal would disable <laughs> all of those things with a button click or a, you know, whatever. But uh, you can't get them all. I mean, even the criminals are thinking, what if I miss something? You know, it's, is it worth it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's a little bit of. Uh maybe over over excitement on behalf of, of the the naysayers in iot as well so right. there there is some sanity somewhere within all the craziness yeah i don't know that there is actually <laughs> there, <laughs> maybe they're just maybe they're just glimpses or it's just degrees of insanity I think, you know, while we're on insanity, look at the extent to which some of the IoT things are going. So uh, there's a there's a device which I saw a little while ago called a Happy Fork, H-A-P-I Fork. Now, this is this is an IoT F-O-R-K, right? F-O-R-K, as, right. as in I'm going to eat my meal with an IoT fork. Now, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I, I again on on the one hand, it, to me, it is so cool that that one of our most basic utensils uh, now has an IP address. Um, on the <laughs> other hand, why does our fork <laughs> have an IP address? Now, apparently, this is for people who are watching how much they eat, 
and it inevitably has a sensor in it uh, or a gyroscope, some sort of form that can identify when you're lifting the thing to your mouth and it can then track how many bites you take on, on that basis. Um, <laughs> and that maybe, the, look, that's just sort of one step further than your Wything scales and, and your other sort of things that have a fairly good practical value. But I just think it's it's interesting how far we are going to connect things that we just never would have thought. I mean, normally it's just a piece of metal, right? It's a single piece of fallen it's metal. It's a fork. It's a fork. And now it's a fork with an IP address and a an 802.11G or N or whatever it may be uh, adapter in it, which is yeah, it's nuts. My fork has LEDs in it. That's crazy. Hey, speaking it. of insanity, Richard, guess what time it is? Uh, it must be that happy time again. Yep. Time to turn on my camera and see who's at my door. Hey. Why is the mailman wearing only a thong? <laughs> Jeez, that's, that's not right. Oh, wait a minute. That's a woman. Oh, gosh. It's terrible. Anyway, it's uh, time to give away a Telerik DevCraft collection to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But before I tell you who it is, join Telerik experts for a DevCraft release webinar on October 29th at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Nice. Learn what's new in the Q3 release and how Telerik can help you create compelling mobile experiences with your .NET skills. See how to use the new adaptive lightweight RAD grid for ASP.NET Ajax, specifically built for mobile. How to build your apps once and deploy them on all Windows devices with Telerik UI for Windows Universal. And create compelling cross-platform native mobile experiences with Telerik UI for Xamarin. Interesting. Sign up now at Telerik.com slash DevCraftQ3. Nice. Our buddy, who's our winner? Today's winner is Paul Redman. I'll clap for Paul. He just won the Telerik DevCraft collection. It's a whole pile of awesome from Telerik. And hey, if you don't know what we're doing here, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few easy questions, and join the .NET Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. Every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors like the DevCraft collection. And uh, every December, we give away $5,000 worth of technology to one lucky member of the fan club. And Troy, it's your turn. If you had $5,000 to spend... On technology, what would you buy? I know what he's going to say, Richard. That's a lot of light bulbs. He's going to say, I want a big box of pineapples. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know what? I am going to stick with the theme here. And I, I would go IoT, and I would go something really bizarre IoT, because um, this uh, intrigues me, and I also think it's um, extremely amusing in, in the context here. So I would buy a uh, Lixil Satus toilet. Have you guys seen this? No. no. Oh, man, you need this. So this, this is an internet, well, it, it is a connected toilet that you control with your smartphone. Uh, now, it's, it's out of Japan, which is the land <laughs> of, of, of course. toilet things. Of course it's out of Japan. <laughs> so there is, um, there is this toilet, which is uh, connected, so you can control the functions of the toilet with your phone. Now, this sounds bizarre, but there's an upside, right? Because if you're controlling it with your phone, you don't have to touch the lid or anything like that. However, so your phone probably has more bacteria on it than the handle of the toilet. Yeah, but we're we're accustomed to that. Yeah, it's right. my bacteria. That's true. <laughs> you know, that's the difference. Not someone else's. Yeah, I don't know how much this is. I reckon five grand would probably cover it. But the, I think the toilet would be cool. And, and and the good news is is that the vulnerability in the toilet has now been patched. <laughs> so these guys, <laughs> <laughs> this is serious. Um, 
<laughs> These guys had a disclosure uh, come out from, from uh, Trustwave, who released a lot of disclosures about vulnerabilities. Uh, and unfortunately, the, the toilet did have a vulnerability, which is the brave new world of IoT. And what I really like about this is that Trustwave uh, summarizes vulnerability as, as such. They said, attackers could cause the unit to unexpectedly open-close the lid, activate bidet or air drive functions, causing discomfort or distress to user. Ouch. Now, how is that? That is a serious vulnerability. That's a serious. You know, that scares me more than anything. <laughs> An attacker activating the bidet on my toilet. <laughs> <laughs> but I still want one. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking at Toto's NeoRest toilets. These are the top tier ones. They're over five grand. You can spend seven, eight thousand dollars in some of these oh, toilets. Yeah. So here's the other interesting thing with that, right? How long do you expect your toilet to last? I mean, right. I, I would imagine that you would want to probably get something like a decade out of your toilet. Now, 10 years from now, how relevant is the technology in your toilet going to be? It, it'd be like looking at your toilet now and it's running Windows XP, right? right. <laughs> it'd be time to upgrade. So this is the really interesting thing because when you start talking about things like toilets, fridges, expensive white goods that have this uh, normally have a pretty good longevity and you whack in things. Yeah, actually, toilets are one of those things you're supposed to use as a reference point for how old the house actually is. They tend to last longer than the house. <laughs> so you start rating the house by the version of firmware that the toilet is running. Right. Well, now that yeah. we have these high-tech toilets, you have this problem, right? It's like It used to be just a piece of porcelain that would basically last forever. Now, I mean... Full disclosure here, I have one of the washlet bidet seats. It's now five years old, and it's needed maintenance. You know, that just proves that I am the only sane one on this call right now. <laughs> <laughs> you guys are effing crazy. Well, you remember, I was about to do a show when I first saw the the uh, invoice for the toilet seat. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah! It was a $1,000 toilet <laughs> you seat. You want a what? <laughs> well, and there was also this whole thing of, and we need an outlet for the toilet seat. It's like, let me get this straight. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to sit down on something plugged into the main. Not good. But it did not have an IP address. Yeah. It is not on the Wi-Fi. Yeah. <laughs> That's probably safer. <laughs> hey, Troy, we've got a few tweets here. Um, Michael Buck asked some pretty basic questions like what patterns can be used to protect the systems and devices in an IoT system, transport security, data sanitization, and what are the problems you foresee with IoT networks? Uh, so we can talk about that. And also, uh, Joshua Carmody says, since studies show that users will give out passwords in exchange for candy, how can we hmm. train users to be wise as IoT grows? Hmm. Yeah, so it's so a good question. I think the first one about, um, you know, the sort of patterns we can use to protect the devices. Uh, look, a, a lot of it, it, it comes down to are we looking at the, the implementation of the device itself and the data we store on it? So one of the things that, that comes up a lot is, all right, if we need to store things like um, uh, credentials or other things on the device, what are the right patterns? Uh, and that inevitably, that is going to come down very much to the, the nature of the data that's stored and what kind of device it is. You know, is it a device that someone could potentially get their hands on and extract useful data from? And, and that's a, I think that's a very sort of broad, amorphous kind of area. But the one I think is a little bit more interesting when it comes to patterns with devices is how those devices are communicating over HTTP. 
And we, you made the point earlier, and I think it was from Clemens show, where he talked about uh, not making the device a server. So, you know, obviously things like those TrendNet cameras, when they're a server receiving requests, you know, that that's nasty. So I, I would totally echo that sentiment. But turning it around the other way, looking at the patterns of how the devices talk to APIs, I, I think is one of the things that is a serious risk. And I I say this, but particularly looking at the way our mobile apps talk to APIs, because it gives you sort of a, a good sense of how our APIs are generally implemented. And I, I think one of the big risks here is that when you put HTTP communications embedded within a device or even just sitting behind the veneer of an app, they're that much more out of sight than the HTTP communication we're used to. So we're used to going to a browser, typing a URL. We see the HTTP requests. For developers, we've got things like uh, browser dev tools where we can look at all the requests. It's easy to sort of manipulate them and try them in different ways. But when we sit them behind that veneer of a piece of infrastructure or a rich client app, they just get that little bit further away from immediate visibility. And that's where I'm seeing a lot of the risk implementation. So we're seeing patterns like uh, no HTTPS at all. We're seeing another pattern in the world of SSL a lot, which is no certificate validation. So there's yeah. HTTPS, but the cert never gets validated. And why doesn't it get validated? Well, because it's easier to test if <laughs> we don't right. validate the cert. And that's one that happens a huge amount, particularly in mobile apps. And so are you saying that these are sort of anti-patterns? You do want to have signed certificates? Anti-patterns. So you, you definitely want to be validating certificates. If you're going to make an HTTPS request, you've got to make sure that certificate is right. Right. And and just to put that in context, this is what frameworks do by default. Mm. Any sort of modern day programming language where it enables you to make requests over HTTP, if it's a secure request, it'll validate the cert. You've actually got to invest effort to turn that off. Mm -hmm. Try turning that off in ASP.NET. It's a pain on the backside to yeah, actually yeah. turn it off when you make an HTTP request. Right. Interesting point. Yeah. Now, w one of the things that Clemens brought up was that uh, he imagines a future, and I don't think this was an official Microsoft thing. It's just him, him and his group. He imagines a future where the the certs and the keys are sort of baked into the devices in silicon, and so you know it's sort of burned in, so that they can't be, you know, hacked, pulled out, changed, that kind of thing. Yeah, and I think that's really starting to head in the right direction. And, and to, to that effect, uh, I guess we, we go a little bit of the way there with some apps that actually do cert pinning, and they do make sure they get the certificate that, that they expect, but that's, that's certainly not the same as hardwiring it into the device. One thing I think that developers also miss is that when you stand up an API behind a device or a mobile app, it's discoverable. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is that you can go and simply proxy that data. So particularly on your mobile devices, it's easy. You can do the same with an IoT device. But it's very easy when you can configure a proxy to say, look, I'm just going to send all the traffic from my iPhone, for example, through Fiddler. Mm. Yeah, it takes, takes a couple of minutes. One of the first things I do in this course, let's start proxying the traffic and just look at what happens there. And what I think we lose track of is that all of this is discoverable, even if it's HTTPS, it's discoverable. It can be intercepted. And when you own the device and you own the network connection, such as you would when you're at home with your iPhone or whatever it may be, you can start manipulating it as well. So you can start manipulating requests. You can start manipulating responses. Now, that may mean that you can get your device, whether it be an IoT or whether it be a mobile app, 
to behave in an entirely different way to what it was designed. Yeah, let me just let that sink in for a minute. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and if, if, if that sounds weird, just think about proxying data through Fiddler, sure. using Fiddler scripts to change on before request or on before response. How many apps are there out there or IoT devices that rely explicitly on the response from the API mm. to do things like assign privileges? Can you escalate your privileges just by simply changing that little is admin flag that comes back from the API to true? And a lot of apps do this. Right. Wow. So that gets back to, you know, how do you protect against that? So I think for the, for the developer, and we'll break this into two categories, developer and consumer. So for developer, applying this paradigm of hacking yourself first. So trying to go through and break these things yourself, proxying data, changing the way the APIs respond, taking the device out of the loop. What about just hitting the API directly and start manipulating parameters? Can you make it do bad things? Um, I stood up a little uh, challenge on my blog a couple of days ago. I said, look, here's how to go and proxy your data and, and find risks in things. Uh, see what you can find in your apps. And people are coming back with the craziest things. Like, you know, look, there's an auth token that's sent to this service, uh, which also has another parameter, which is a user ID that allows you to do things, but it doesn't actually look at the auth token. You just change the user ID and suddenly I'm somebody else. Now, this is the way our IoT things in our mobile apps are, are often communicating. So, you know, as a dev, can we break it just by mucking around with the API calls? Mm. As a consumer, it, it's difficult because you, you really don't have a lot to base your trust conclusions right. on other than the reputation of the brand. Uh, sometimes that is okay. Uh, other times, <laughs> like uh, we keep coming back to TrustWave, uh, sorry, not TrustWave, the, the TrendNet cameras, it yeah. may not be such a good, good thing. It's difficult too for a consumer because how does a consumer even do things like keep their devices up to date, keep their firmware up to date. How many consumers have devices that they're using now that are vulnerable to shell shock? Right. So there's a thought. Hmm. How many routers? That's <laughs> we're not sort of accustomed to to actually patching these things and keeping them current. So that's uh, it, it's a tricky one for consumers because they really just can't do much more than decide whether they trust the thing, plug it in, and hope <laughs> for the best. Yeah, and and therein lies the real problem, which is that. All these IoT devices, they're not computers or phones or tablets that we feel personally connected to. They're not that, that intimacy that you're going to keep them patched and up to date and concerned about their security. They're the peripherals. They're the appliances that are just there. Why would I update mm. that? And so when they get an exploit, they tend to keep that exploit. You don't even know you have it anymore. No, exactly. And, and there are so many things now that want to talk back out over the net. And I, it may not be strictly IoT, but think about things like NAS devices, right? Yeah. So NAS devices are great. They've got lots of remote administration facilities. They've got lots of great apps that, that some of them you want to use remotely. You want to use things like Plex remotely on your NAS device so right. that you can, you know, pull down your movies while you're traveling. Now that's awesome, but it does mean that there is a gateway back into your network as well. Yeah. There's an opening. You know, one of the first things I turn off on every device is remote administration. You have to be on the inside of the network to administer it. Yep. Yeah, it, it just makes sense. I mean, that's that's kind of where you got to start. And it's it's almost like the, you know, going down that sort of principle of least permissions route where you go, okay, what is the absolute bare minimum that is required in order to actually get this job done? Right. 
You know, I was thinking to that um, listener question, Carl, about how do you stop people from giving out passwords? Right. Isn't the answer not to have people have passwords? Well, they just don't know what they are. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting take, too. I mean, you, you sort of derive the password from from their data somehow. Or, or the, you know, what I'm thinking here is, like, I've been living in LastPass for a while now. Mm-hmm. I simply don't know what my passwords are. Now, what's LastPass? It's just a third-party tool for keeping track of passwords for me. So that every password is different on every location. It's literally a randomly generated set of characters. It's as long as I as they'll allow it. And it, you know, it allows tools to self-fill in for me. But yeah, you you could beat me with a wrench, right? I don't know what my PayPal password is. Wow. I, I just don't know. But the more interesting thing is this idea of, hey, I need to know your PayPal password. Well, no, you don't. You need access to my PayPal account. Right. Like, isn't, isn't, it, isn't the more sensible thing for me to be able to grant privileges to someone? Yeah. Troy, you know what I mean? The, the, yeah, I want to yeah. get away from, I have an identity I can hand to someone else and rather just do the privilege uh, offering. Yep. Yeah, so I think that's one way of looking at it. I think another way of looking at it is that the question is not so much I need your password, it's that I need to verify your authenticity, right? I, right. I need mm. to know that you are who you say you are. Uh, and I'm with you, Richard. I use a password manager. I've got one password and I've got everything in there and those suckers are as crazy as I can make them. You know, yeah. they're randomly generated yeah. and th- there are still a handful of things that you do need to remember. I mean, you know, things like uh, for, for iCloud, I don't want to have to sort of go back into a password manager every single time I get an app because mm. that's a yeah. pain in the backside. Um, but now that you you have good password managers that have strong cryptographic storage and they integrate into the OS so that it's as simple as I'm logging onto a web page I'm going to push a keystroke combination, whack in my master password, and bang, I'm logged in. That's fantastic, and that moves us away from the point where someone can even ask for the password because I'm not reading you out 50, 60 characters worth of the characters, mate. No chance. Right. <laughs> well, I like the idea of, uh, you know, I'll give you, I'll give you access if you give me your identity so that I can connect you with it, which did now puts a wrist on them. I have to know who you are to give you privilege. Mm. And that's what you're seeing with OAuth, kind of, isn't it? I mean, you give your Facebook identity to whatever page to log in with it. You know, what's interesting here is that you guys are talking about these password managers and all these cool apps and stuff. And I just tend to think that mere mortals just, it's going to be a long time before you can drag Joe web browser user, mobile phone user kicking and screaming down that road. But in the meantime, you probably could teach them some techniques like, uh, you know, using phrases for passwords and phrases that are easy to remember that incorporate the, you know, the site or the whatever into them um, uh, turn out to be really, really effective, don't they? When they're allowed, uh, and I'll give you an example of what I mean by that. So you can't create a password longer than 16 characters for your Microsoft Live ID. Wow. And they swear black and blue, and I'm, I'm saying this is an MVP, so I've got a sort of an interest in both camps, but their position is that, look, they have all sorts of security mechanisms to, to appropriately secure your credentials on their side, so the fact that your, your entropy may be a bit lower than what you would prefer mm. uh, shouldn't matter. But it, it does rule out this increasingly common uh, pattern, which is I want a passphrase. I want a right. sentence. Uh, 
Yeah. And that's that's really unfortunate. And it's, you know, honestly, to, to the detriment of, of password security overall, because you would really like to be able to get to this position where you say to people, you know, you, you can choose the mechanism by which you create your password. Now, for me personally, because I've got a good password manager, I want to be able to create lots and lots of crazy characters. And on that basis, if it's 16 characters of total randomness, then that's probably going to be pretty it's strong anyway. pretty good, yeah. But for the folks that go, look, what I'd really like to do is I'd like a sentence, you know, it's just unfortunate that they get blocked out of it. So 16 chars is, you know, that's that's a bit painful, but it's well, not nearly as And what's as bad. their excuse? <laughs> well, I, I can tell you. Their excuse is that they have a field in a SQL server somewhere that's 16 <laughs> characters and changing it would be un- unheard of. Uh, it would I, cost I, I, billions I, I, of dollars. <coughs> that's probably the reality. So, so this is the unfortunate conclusion that people will draw, and it's yeah. I, I think for for Microsoft, that's almost certainly not the reality. They will be strongly hashing it somewhere, um, right? But which means it doesn't matter the, how long it is. Exactly, because it will all compute to the same deterministic value that will be a consistent string length, and and that's that's fine. Uh, many organisations though are doing just that. Those guys have got a varchar sixteen in there somewhere. And that's it. But it does get worse as well because you've still got a lot of sites that request a pin, particularly banks and airlines. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, no, sorry, no, no. Uh, it's not like okay, you can't go over sixteen. It's here are these twenty six characters that you cannot use, and they're all the letters of the alphabet. But we have for you these ten characters that you can use, which are numbers. <laughs> Choose four. So that <laughs> MVPs have a pin. <laughs> yeah. Right. It, it, but, you know, there, there are contexts where that makes sense, right? So if you're using a telephone or if you're using an ATM, pins make sense. But mm. what happens is that that paradigm gets extended into the online world to secure things that are more than just taking some dollars out of the bank that have a, a low cap and you have to physically be there at a machine. And that's unfortunate. Here's a uh, tweet from Steve Merkel. He says, Troy, thoughts on increase in connected devices sold at home improvement stores? Any caution for non-techie do-it-yourself people? Yeah, it's a hard one because we come back to this uh, sort of consumers making their own risk assessments. Right, the um, light bulb story. Exactly. And and whether it's it's IoT or whether it is other devices that have a security impact, things like um, uh, home security systems, you know, there are DIY home security systems. They may not have an IP address, but how effective are they? And, and certainly many of them have shown to be enormously ineffective. And it's, it's just very difficult for consumers to make their own calls on that. So, the, you know, the, the only sort of answer I can give is is to do your research on, on the web, look for reviews and try and find some sort of security analysis of it. And if in doubt, uh, probably go for the larger guys that are probably more likely to have done their due diligence on security. But it is enormously hard to tell as a consumer. I, I got a flyer for AT&T was, you know, offering this in-home security package. And uh, it was like $200 off. And I'm thinking, oh, boy, they're selling like hotcakes, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, that must yeah, be really good yeah. security. Discount security. AT&T discount security. Sign up. <laughs> <laughs> it's like discount shark repellent. No thanks. You know, the funny part is when it comes to PCs, tablets, phones, and so forth, we have some control over the security options, yeah. what apps we install, how we want to handle things, and so forth. When you get to a light bulb, there's an insecurity in the light bulb. You're kind of screwed. Don't use the light bulb. 
Yeah. And, and to Troy's point, how do you know when you buy it? When you get, how do you know when you buy a light bulb that it's not exposing itself on your Wi Fi as a server? Yeah, you look, you, you don't. But the, the, look, there are probably a couple of other things that you can do, particularly for connecting things at, at home. So, so one of them is to really think, does my connected device actually need to be on the same network that's got all my personal documents? You know, do I really need my light bulbs to be able to talk to my Excel files with my finances? <laughs> probably not. Mm. So if you do have any ability to, to segment networks or you've got the ability to put it on a guest network, that's probably not a bad thing. It's funny. I'm right there now, Troy. For me personally, I have so many IP connected devices in the house now. The C class is running out of room anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm, ab- yeah. I'm about at the point of creating a subnet for the house, a subnet for PC devices. But I also appreciate I picked up one of the new WRT 1900ACs, which is the brand new Linksys router, the, the big one. And built into that is guest network support. Yeah, now, so here's a question. So if you have your light bulbs, and I can't believe I'm saying this, your light bulbs are on your guest network, and your smartphone (laughs) is on your primary network, can your smartphone still orchestrate your light bulbs on the other network? Well, you're going to have to build a route now, aren't you? But, you know, you could literally (laughs) now firewall that together and say, this MAC address being your phone's has rights into that network. Well, you can also use ARP, right, to find all the IP addresses on your network. So if you want to know where all the lights are and all the... Everything that's hanging off your Wi-Fi, you can use that tool, right? Well, you're isolated by subnets, so you have to build a route between the subnets. Yeah, right. I'm just trying to imagine ex- explaining this, uh, say, to my parents. So, yeah, yeah, get these light bulbs. They're awesome. Now, when you go home, what you got to do, you create a subnet. You create a route between the subnets. <laughs> and then you, then you can turn your lights on. But, you know, what? I, the reason I could join those two things together is that Linksys is now starting to do this for us, this idea that, hey, built into the, the firmware for my router is this ability to have, these are not devices that should talk to my regular network, just give them internet access. Even that, that works for us. And we can go home and we can probably work that out. Right. But your average consumer to, to now think, okay, now what I've got to do is I've got to have a router so that my light bulbs uh, can talk to the phone, but they can't orchestrate the documents. And I set this router up and I configure the firmware. And <laughs> it's, yeah. it's like, man, this is a brave new world. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> well, we do it manually. But I can see us building wizards to make this a little more feasible because you mm. get into these sort of known endpoints. Do I want any mobile device on my Wi-Fi to control lights? No, I want that device, that device, and that device to control. Mm-hmm. Yeah, now see, there's that, or there's go home and just join it to your network. Mm-hmm. You know, what's a consumer going to do? They're going to go the easy route, certainly right. at the moment, because even no matter how many wizards and things we put in it, that's more steps. And really, it requires a bit of an understanding of why might I not want my light bulbs on the same network as all my other things? Yeah. It, that is, it, it's sort of consistently raising the barrier to use the technology. And that's the sort of thing that causes people to take shortcuts. <laughs> How the heck are Joe consumers going to figure this stuff out? We're going to have to make it easier. Yeah. Troy, any uh, last minute resources or shout outs you want to throw out there before we stop? So, look, I, I think the one of the best things I can leave, for, particularly for this audience, is go and start hacking your APIs first. And, you know, what I mean by that is go and proxy your 
iOS device, your Android, your WinPhone through Fiddler and just start looking at the way these things are talking. So start to learn how these APIs are being consumed. Um, that's the the title of the course that is pushed, Hack Your API First. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's some info on my blog. There's a, a free video on my blog about how to do this. Um, but go and do it because you will find absolutely fascinating things. I, I give an example where I open up one of the car magazines on my iPad. The first time you open this up, it sucks down 1.8 gigabytes of data over your network. You have Ouch. no idea these things are happening, right? What are you doing in there? <laughs> well, it's got to download every single episode or every single edition of the magazine so that after you authenticate, it can unlock it for you and it's already there, but it's already pulled it all down and you can see where all the nice pictures and articles and things are anyway. So you will find the most bizarre things when you start proxying your API data. So so go and do that and, you, and you'll, you'll seriously, you'll blow an afternoon because it's just fascinating. Here's one, uh, Spotify. I installed Spotify and then it came up and said, hey, do you want to allow this uh, port? You know, it's obviously being a server. And I said, well, no. And then I went and looked, and it turns out that there's a peer, a peer-to-peer network built into Spotify. And you may not have known this, but just by running, you're sharing everything that you've downloaded in a right. peer-to-peer network with other Spotify users. And you look at your network usage, go nuts. So make sure that you're not... Uh, Using Spotify on a dial-up, or not a dial-up, but a, on a tethered connection. Yeah. yeah, there goes your bandwidth. There goes your bandwidth. Crazy. Crazy. Troy, thanks. It's great advice, as always. Look forward to talking to you next time. Always fun, guys. Thanks. All right. We'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got